episode three of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I am your host, Joe, joining you as usual. Um, it has been two weeks since our last episode on Wing Commander, so that kind of brought to my mind that it was time to do another episode. And I'm really excited about our topic today. So since our last episode, I've been uh, messing around with some personal uh, stuff. My wife, Fran, convinced me uh, a little while back to run a half marathon on May 6th. It's the Mississauga half marathon, which is, uh, which takes place a little bit west of, uh, of where we live just outside of Toronto. And, uh, so basically the past two weeks have involved a lot of, uh, gearing up to, uh, to run that 21 kilometer race. So a lot of little short pace runs and longer distance runs and tempo runs and, you know, I'm sure we can do a whole other podcast on, uh, on, on training for a half marathon. You know, that's been going on. My, uh, my legs are somewhat sore, but, um, you know, I'm excited for the race. And, um, that's kind of the main, uh, the main thrust of, uh, of what's been going on with me for the past two weeks since we last spoke. I haven't come across a ton in the way of news either because, uh, I've been too busy training for my half marathon or because not, a ton has happened in the space. Uh, one thing that I would love to follow up on is uh, the Leisure Suit Larry Kickstarter project that I was talking about last um, last time we were together. Uh, and actually just today, I believe today is April 25th, the day that I'm recording this. And just today, this afternoon, uh, the project uh, reached 100% of its funding goal. So Aldo and uh, the former Sierra developers at Replay Games uh, they they got their five hundred thousand dollars in uh, in promised Kickstarter donations, which means that on May second, when the project reaches the uh, end of its its funding window, I guess you can call it, the project will fund. The money will be taken, and um, and they can potentially proceed with um, with the game or with the you know continue starting or continuing development with the game. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this in, in the media over the past little while, uh, starting off with uh, with Tim Schafer, who's another superstar from the area of video games that I like to cover on this podcast. And I'm sure we will be covering one of his games, either Grim Fandango or Psychonauts or something like that in the near future. But him and his company, Double Fine, they, uh, they kind of got this whole Kickstarter for video game projects thing running. They raised quite a lot of money. They blew past the goal of what they had intended to uh, to raise. And that kind of caused a whole lot of other of these uh, of these game projects, be they, you know, remakes of classic games or revitalizations of dead genres or even just original game ideas. Uh, these have blown up on Kickstarter lately. And uh, I, I missed out on this whole double fine thing. And this Leisure Suit Larry uh, Kickstarter is kind of what led me to to look at all of this, you know, it, it's it's an interesting discussion to have, and you know, maybe later on uh, in a special, maybe in a podcast special or or something like that, we can we could have a discussion about something like this. But because Tim Schafer and Double Fine got this huge ball rolling, and all these other game projects have 
started asking for funding, it, it begs the question, how do we know if one of these Kickstarter projects is worth funding? You know, how is it worthwhile? You know, and I guess the question is, especially for these projects in so-called dead genres, like or like graphical adventure games, and I know I came across another one from former LucasArts developers, or at least one former LucasArts developer, where they are trying to recreate a space simulator in the vein of Wing Commander, like we talked about last week, or X-Wing. And, you know, a lot of us did enjoy these games at the time that they came out, and we love reminiscing about them, and we always wish that they would come back and that, you know, they'd create, you know, uh, space combat simulators in the modern, you know, with modern technology that they'd create, you know, more bigger budget adventure games with modern day technology. But I guess a question we need to ask is, are these genres dead for a reason? You know, do they not appeal to a mass market these days? And, you know, is putting our hard-earned money behind these projects worth our time? Is it somewhere, you know, and I guess putting money into these Kickstarters is a gamble. And I, you know, personally, when I do it, I know I've given money to a few Kickstarters, uh, especially this month for some reason. And I kind of come in with the intention that, well, this money is gone and, you know, maybe I'll get a t-shirt out of the deal. Maybe I won't. But... I don't really expect there to be a game. And if a game does come out of it and the game is fun and I get to re-experience something like Leisure Suit Larry in the Land of the Lounge Lizards or X-Wing or whatever, um, you know, that's just a bonus. So anyways, Leisure Suit Larry, still a couple of days left to uh, to give money, even though they have reached their funding goal. They love to have more money, of course, and uh, they're asking people for additional, you know, additional features they might want because they've reached and exceeded their funding goal and uh and all of that so again you can check that out on kickstarter like i said still a couple of days left it closes out on may 2nd uh secondly in the in the news portion of the show here uh some podcast news uh last week i signed up with stitcher radio uh stitcher is a a really cool a really cool concept. It's uh, primarily a mobile app where you know you register a podcast and you can uh, you can live stream podcasts whenever you want. Uh, so you know that this episode of the show, as soon as the feed is updated, will appear on Stitcher Radio, and you have the option of of listening to it streamed, and you can push that to Facebook. Say you're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast and all that, and it will also uh, suggest to you other podcasts you might like based on what uh, what you're listening to. So it's a pretty cool app. Uh, we're on there, and uh, if you want to check it out, you can go to stitcher.com and look at their website, or you can go to your respective uh, app store, be it the uh, the iOS app store or the uh, the Android market, and uh, and search Stitcher Radio, and then look for the upper memory block, and you can listen to us that way. Finally, in uh, in the news, I've had quite a bit of uh, of movement on my fun DOS gaming box project. So after the podcast last week, I was talking about the fact that I was getting my hands on a Pentium 2 chassis. And uh, I did. I believe it was actually the day after the podcast. So uh, my good friend from work, Brian... He, uh, he went into his basement and he pulled out his dusty old ATX mid-tower case with a Pentium 2 450 megahertz in it. 
And uh, that's mounted on an Asus P2BF motherboard connected to a 250-watt power supply, which makes me kind of laugh because my modern uh, gaming desktop from Doghouse Systems uh, has, I believe, a 750-watt power supply in it. This one seems a little bit piddly, but I guess it does the job. Uh, There's 256 megs of SD RAM in there. And uh, another of my friends from work, Paul, uh, gave me some Pentium 3 machines and I pulled a hard drive out of there. So there's a 20 gig IDE hard drive in there. I believe it is a Mac store. And uh, the case also came with a vintage NVIDIA Riva TNT 2D 3D combo graphics card. So I have a, a vintage time appropriate video card in there. It's got a whole 16 megs of video RAM on board. And uh, <laughs> it's really cool. Nice VGA port on the back. Uh, Brian was also able to scrounge up uh, a Roland MPU-401 compatible MIDI device. And that's really cool because if I am eventually able to get my hands on maybe a Roland NT32 or uh, one of the follow-up devices to that, I can have external MIDI you know, plugged right into the interface and all that. And I had an old 15-inch CRT monitor from... Uh, from my wife's, one of my wife's old desktops lying around. So that's all sitting there. The, the computer doesn't have a case around it or it doesn't have a cover over the case because Brian wanted to keep that to use as a backstop for his uh, pellet gun range back, uh, back at home, which is awesome. And um, yeah, so I got all that stuff home. And uh, after a first initial shock of turning on the, uh, turning on the computer and uh, the power supply spinning up and nothing happening and a little bit of, oh my God, this isn't working. Oh, well. Um, I fiddled with the connectors, pushed some things into where they were supposed to be, and all of a sudden, boom, the machine posted, and um, I started putting pieces together. So right now it's uh, it's working. It's booting into Windows 98. Uh, the only major component I'm missing right now is a sound card, which uh, my good friend Jedi Jeff from the Trex and Sci-Fi forums is uh, is mailing me from uh, from Alberta, where he lives. So I'm just waiting on that. That's going to be a... Sound Blaster AWE32, I believe. So that should be a lot of fun. And uh, the only problem I'm having right now is that I can't seem to get Windows 98 Second Edition to play well with the video card. Uh, I boot up and everything works, but I'm relegated to uh, 640 by 480, 16 colors. Uh, so, you know, I tried a whole bunch of, uh, of different drivers from NVIDIA and... Um, you know, none of them seem to work. I mean, the drivers install properly. It identifies the hardware properly. But when I try and change my resolution to anything above 640 by 480 and my color depth to anything higher than 16 colors, uh, Windows 98 reboots pops in and then tells me that there's a problem with uh, with my settings, that either my hardware is not compatible with uh, with the current settings or there's some type of issue. So what I've actually done is I went on eBay and... Uh, I ordered for, I believe, about $15, a, uh, a Riva TNT2, an Asus, and uh, that's going to come with a driver disc, and uh, perhaps if uh, I swap out the, the old original TNT for this TNT2 with you know the uh, not just the reference drivers, the actual drivers that uh, belong to it, then uh, you know hopefully that'll work out a bit better, and um, you know I'll be able to move it into a, move it onto a desk because right now it's sitting on the floor in my basement. And, uh, and and start having some uh, some time appropriate fun. But so far, this has been a really really fun project. It reminded me uh, a little bit about how frustrating things can be 
with uh, with these kinds of you know with uh, getting things running on older hardware and older operating systems and that. So you know, I still have a few other stories about it, but uh, but that'll do for now. Things are proceeding. Thanks a lot to uh, to Jeff and Brian and Paul and Sergey for uh, for digging through your basements and supplying me with all the parts I need or all the parts that uh, that I can scrounge together to uh, to complete this little side quest. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... All right, so as I said last week, we are going to talk today primarily about the SimCity series. And, uh, you know, this is a really cool series. I have a lot of very fond memories of, of all the games in this series. And, uh, you know, we're going to start, we're going to talk about the original game, but I'm going to concentrate most of the review portion of, uh, of the show on, uh, on SimCity 2000, you know, with regard to things like graphics and sound. But I'm going to talk about kind of the whole series because we can't get to SimCity 2000 at all without knowing the history of the franchise and its incredible, incredible, incredible effect on the, uh, both its genre and uh, and gaming and the gaming world kind of as a whole. This game is is huge. You know, I, last week I may have said Wing Commander was huge. SimCity is huger. This is an incredible game, an incredible series, and it was very defining and groundbreaking and all that. But we're going to get to that. So uh, I guess you know, as a quick overview, SimCity, the the goal of SimCity or the idea behind SimCity is that Sim SimCity, not SimCity is that uh, it's a, a city-building simulator. So the goal of the game is to, uh, very simply, within the constraints of, of the game, to build a successful and um, prosperous city. And, you know, your the definition of that is, is very wide open, and that's one of the things that makes this game quite unique. So let's talk a little bit about the genre. So SimCity is an example of a construction and management simulation. So these types of games have players generally tasked with building, expanding, or managing some kind of community or some kind of project within the scope of, uh, of limited resources. So in SimCity, so your limited resource would be money. Uh, you know, these resources, they can vary between things like money, natural resources, power, or any other kind of input which needs to be collected and either traded or consumed to maintain or to expand the scope of, uh, of your project. Other examples of construction management simulations are games like the, uh, the Caesar series where, you know, you're effectively SimCity in Roman times. And, uh, you know, there's other games that have much smaller scopes like uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon where you're building maybe an amusement park or even a specific roller coaster. Uh, all of that. So SimCity is a pure construction and management simulation, but some aspects of this genre have been ported into many types of other games. Um, you know, for example, in real-time strategy games, which we haven't really covered yet, but they will become one of those will be coming up very soon. Um, you know, players are generally required to manage resources. You know, like uh, ore or wood or gold or whatever to uh, to develop both a base of operations and also to create the various military units that they would need to uh, to play the game uh, this as the aspect this aspect of that genre is inspired by these pure uh, construction management games uh, another good example of you know a good example of this would be say uh, dune 
Dune 2, sorry, or, uh, or Age of Empires. Uh, however, in pure CMS games, there tends to be no specific enemy, unlike in these real-time strategy games. And there's also very, very minimal story or any type of like progression through the game. Uh, these kinds of games tend to be very, very freeform. Uh, some of them offer goals or scenarios, but the general point of the genre is to succeed in being creative versus winning or defeating an enemy. Uh, we'll get into this a lot more as we talk about SimCity. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for development. All right, so this uh, this time around, I'm changing up the format a little bit. I think the the story of the development and the creation of SimCity is kind of uh, the way to go about defining how this game is a very special, as opposed to talking about like we did last week, more of the gameplay and the graphics. So um, we'll. We'll, we'll go about it this way and we'll see how this works out. Anyways, the idea and the concept for SimCity can trace themselves back to a single man named Will Wright and his first video game effort, a straightforward top-down shoot-em-up game called Raid on Bungling Bay. Uh, Will Wright was born on January 20th, 1960 in Atlanta, Georgia. At nine years old, he lost his father and soon thereafter, he and his mother moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to, uh, to be closer to her family. As a child, Wright was, uh, was a bit of a bookworm, and he had this tendency of becoming obsessed with, uh, with certain topics, and he would kind of obsessively learn everything about them for you know six months or even a year at a time. Uh, he loved building model tanks, ships, and planes, and playing with them, and at times even you know, doing things like blowing them up with firecrackers, which uh, I recall doing when I was a child, and uh, you know, it's always fun <laughs> blowing up toys. Uh, so into his teenage years, he def he started getting into things like robotics, uh, cobbling things together from random electronic parts that that he could scrounge up from you know shops or friends who had or parents who you know were redoing their houses or things like that. These robots that he made could be controlled by programs which he created on his Apple II. Uh, he found programming the robots via computer to be an incredibly interesting challenge, and he became more and more interested. In, in, tar in artificial intelligence uh, because, of, because of these experiences. So um, by 1981, uh, Will had become a fairly adept Apple II programmer and he had started getting into uh, the video games of, of the time. He became very fascinated by the computer's ability to create these alternate worlds inside of this little box. And uh, you know, it, it, it enraptured him and it kind of it impressed him quite a lot. So eventually he noticed that he was spending quite a lot of time playing these video games. And uh, he finally decided that he would try and create one himself. So at 22 years old, he started to work on his first game on his own time called Raid on Bungling Bay for the Commodore 64. Uh, the premise for Raid on Bungling Bay was very, very simple. You fly a helicopter based on an aircraft carrier uh, in search of six secret factories spanned across a group of islands spanning about 100 screens. Uh, it's in your best interest to find and destroy these factories very quickly as because as time goes on, the factories would build stronger and stronger defenses around them. And uh, if you took too long, they would build too many defenses and you would become overwhelmed and it would become basically, excuse me, basically impossible for, um, for you to, to destroy the factories. 
so Wright shopped the game around for a while, and it was quickly picked up by Broderbund Software and, uh, you know, option for, for distribution. So now normally the way you would make a game like this is uh, that, you know, the, the programmer would create kind of the logic and the controls and, and you know, do things to make the game actually happen. And then either the same programmer at the time or someone who was a bit more of an artist would draw out the map of islands in a very conventional way, you know, and, you know, the map would be fixed and they would put in all the details and the land masses and the water and all, all of the things like that. Uh, Will Wright did not feel like doing this. He, I, he may have started, he may not even have, but either way, he found drawing a huge hundred screen map intensely boring. Uh, instead, he decided to create a utility on the side that would kind of generate the islands uh, randomly given a set of parameters. He also added on code that would add roads on the islands, <laughs> if you can see where I'm going with this. Uh, so eventually he finished the shoot 'em up part of the game, which was, again, as I said, very straightforward, but he kept returning to this island generator code and adding more and more features to it. Uh, he fully automated the road builder, so instead of just kind of throwing roads on each island, it would actually connect all the islands via bridges and uh, create one continuous road throughout the entire map. Uh, he also added options for different buildings to be automatically added to each island, so on and so forth and so forth. Once he was through with this, he realized he had had much, much, much more fun building the islands than he did building the shooter. Uh, he kept wanting to add more behavior, such as, you know, to have things like traffic and, uh, and industry and residences and things like that to continue to bring the world to life. But, you know, having traffic in this game wouldn't make sense unless there was somewhere for the traffic to go. As he added layers of complexity to this model, his idea for SimCity was born. So now, Wright had decided he was going to make a game based on his island editor from Raid from Bungling Bay. Uh, but at the time, he didn't really know very much about cities and urban planning, so he did what he did when he was a kid. He started studying urban planning very intensely. In his studies, he came across the work of three separate scholars whose theories would form the basis for SimCity. So there's three guys named Jay Forrester, Christopher Alexander, and Whitehold Ribziki, 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 something like that. Ribziki. I'll go with that. So firstly, Jay Forrester. He was a professor at MIT, and in 1969, he published a book called Urban Dynamics. So Forrester was not an urban planner, but he was more of kind of like a mathematician and computer scientist. So without getting into too much complicated detail, uh, Forrester tried to disprove popular conceptions about why cities decay using various computer models. These computer models took things into account like industry, housing, population density, stuff like that. So his models tended to look at cities as kind of a whole single entity instead of the more traditional method of measuring things kind of very locally neighborhood by neighborhood. He believed that people could understand evolving complex systems by studying any relevant piece of information through the lens of supply and demand. So kind of a bit through, through a bit more of an economic kind of point of view. 
of course, Forrester's computer models were just grids of numbers and labels, you know, unlike what SimCity would become. But, uh, you know, this concept really formed the basis for, for SimCity's model, as we'll see later on with the well-known kind of residential, commercial, industrial uh, zones and that indicator that will uh, tell you what the, uh, the demand is versus the supply. So that was number one. The second major theory was uh, by Berkeley architect Christopher Alexander. So this guy basically stated that cities exist in kind of a, what he called a semi-lattice structure, where parts of the city kind of bled into each other and they all kind of developed according to a universal set of principles, no matter what the function of the part of the city is or where it was in relation to other parts of the city. This allowed Wright to kind of create a baseline for how, you know, any type of zone within SimCity, regardless of what its type was, residential, commercial, industrial, or other, you know, they all had the same basic set of rules as to how they worked. How they developed would be different based on what type of zone they were, but, you know, they all needed things like power. They all needed things like road access, et cetera, et cetera. So that allowed him, again, to simplify his model a little bit. And then finally, a uh, big urban planning rule number three that uh, that Will Wright found was by uh, Ytold Ribzinki. You can look him up and you can read the name because it is difficult. Anyways, he is, was a professor of urbanism at the University of Philadelphia. In 1955, he wrote a book called City Life, where he points out the differences between evolution of European cities versus the evolution of American cities. Uh, because early American urban planners were faced with, you know, amber plains of grain and whatever, you know, a lot of uninterrupted space and a lot of open space, American cities tended to develop in a manner which left things open for continued growth. This usually resulted in a bit more of a spread out kind of grid layout. And as we'll see, the grid is pretty much the basis of, of the Sim City map. So with these three theories in mind, I hope I didn't bore you too much with my very rudimentary urban planning knowledge, but uh, with these theories in mind, uh, Wright took his island editor and started layering things in. You know, he started layering in things like traffic, things like people, and a related ecosystem based on primarily foresters' um, computer models for them to exist in. And, you know, using the rules from Forrester's models, he would simulate the environment and see how things would kind of evolve over time. He got very excited by this and, you know, he started thinking that he might have something pretty interesting here. So after about a year of solo development, Wright felt that he had a unique gaming experience on his hands that was much different from anything else currently available. Most games of the time were more about visceral action and killing things and beating the enemy and, you know, heaping honor upon your country and things like that. SimCity, as it was originally built, was a very laid-back game that rewarded planning, but it also rewarded creativity. Uh, the game, which was originally codenamed Micropolis, uh, allowed a player to zone different areas of land on a map as residential, commercial, or industrial. You could build a transit infrastructure containing roads. Uh, you could build a power grid, including two different kinds of power plants. And there were other special buildings, such as airports and seaports, to you know sustain commerce and 
and things like that. The view was top down and you operated kind of on a flat map and there was either, there were a couple of different tile versions. You had, you know, grassy plains or dirt or ocean. Obviously you couldn't build on the, on this, the, uh, the ocean tiles, but, um, but yeah, that was that. Uh, and, and the big thing about the game, which right put in right from the beginning is that there were no preset conditions to victory. There was no way, just like there was a way that you could lose Wing Commander, there was no way to win SimCity. Uh, so Wright took his, his fancy new game and he started shopping it around to different distributors. Uh, you know, they would look at it, they'd be impressed with the simulation and the complexity and how interesting the game seemed, but then they would all kind of ask the same question. How will you make this into a game? Broderbund, who had published Wright's previous game were very, very, very skeptical about this whole thing. They compared it to playing with Legos and that without a way to win, the game would not sell very well. So, you know, Wright, a little bit dejected, but, you know, still accepting of of their decision, went off in a bit of a huff and, and he uh, he tried to sell the Commodore 64 version of SimCity himself. Sorry, himself. But um, without a real distributor, uh, the sales were small and slow and, you know, things didn't really take off very, very well. had a great game on his hands and uh, no one wanted to buy it and he couldn't sell it so things kind of went on this way for about two years the book you know he was selling it very very casually it was sitting on a shelf after two years he was invited to a party thrown by Jeff Braun who was uh, a bit of a businessman who was looking to get into the video game market uh, Wright showed him SimCity and Braun was floored he loved this game uh, obviously, by this point, you know, two years without much going on, Will Wright was was pretty dejected and and unmotivated to uh, to sell the game, and he wasn't really convinced that that it would be a commercial success. But after some convincing, Braun convinced Wright to come on board, and together they founded their new gaming company called Maxis. The development team for SimCity consisted pretty much completely of Wright by himself. He was also the entire design team, which tends to remind me at times of my own uh, work situation, which I don't need to get into because I may go off on a tangent. Uh, anyways, Braun handled all the business aspects of things while Wright handled all the development work. They had a few other employees kind of assisting, but uh, but primarily the company was were, were these two men. The next year, the two of them met with Broderbund to try and clear the rights uh, they had held based on the previous agreement with, with Will Wright. In the meeting, they showed the game again, and perhaps with Braun's slightly more uh, impressive style or the additional development resources and the development time that they put in, Broderbund realized the game was addictive and fun. And uh, by the 1989 release, they actually had not cleared their rights with Maxis, but had entered a co-publishing agreement along with them. So in 1989, uh, SimCity released for the Amiga and the Macintosh platforms simultaneously. And one thing that you could notice right away from this initial uh, dual platform release is that Will Wright, as smart as he is and as talented as he is, he is not a graphic designer. 
It showed very much. The graphics in uh, the Amiga version and the Mac version were very, very basic. And uh, for the PC release, which happened a little bit later, Broderbund, Broderbund realized this, and uh, they hired some graphics artists and upgraded the look of the game. And also, while the main game was very open-ended, kind of as uh, the term would come to be known, it was more of a software toy that would be played with than a game, Broderbund Marketing convinced the Maxis team to include optional scenarios that could be played and that could be won. Uh, they agreed... And the Mac and Amiga versions shipped with eight scenario, or sorry, the Mac and Amiga versions shipped with six scenarios, and uh, the PC version shipped with eight. Uh, the scenarios included tasks such as, uh, for example, one of them was reducing traffic in Burn by installing a mass transit system, and uh, another one was helping San Francisco rebuild after the 1906 earthquake. And this ranged from these realistic situations all the way to defending Tokyo against Godzilla minimizing the damage that Godzilla causes and rebuilding the city in the wake of Godzilla's destruction. So the full release of SimCity, co-released by Broderbund and Maxis, started a slow boil to becoming one of the most celebrated games of 1989. Time Magazine ran a full-page article about it at a time when computer games were pretty much a fringe product. You know, not too many uh, moms and dads and grandmas knew what computer gaming was. In its first year, it sold about $3 million worth of product. Maxis started being contacted by large organizations and government agencies to produce specialized simulations in the vein of SimCity for things like oil refineries, healthcare systems, and uh, even logging operations. They did a few of these in the meantime, but found that they were wasting more time negotiating contracts than making innovative games. SimCity, in addition, was being adopted in schools to teach children about things like zoning and taxation. So, with its newfound success with the uh, the release of SimCity, Maxis spent the five next five years expanding their their Sim Empire, building the very ambitious uh, Sim Earth, where you control the biosphere of a planet in an effort to create intelligent life. Uh, they went the other direction to the microscop, the microcosmic, with a game called Sim Ant, where you simulated an ant colony. Uh, Sim Life attempted to simulate evolution. They had a train simulator called A Train, and they also worked on quite a few ports and enhancements of the original Sim City. Uh, a CD-ROM version of Sim City, I believe, called Sim City Enhanced, contained instead of uh, just text of, uh, of of advisors giving you advice on your city council or just little crappy animations of of disasters. They had full motion video scenes. And things like that. And uh, additionally, there was a, a port to the Super Nintendo, which is the uh, the first place that I actually played the original version of Sim City. And uh, you know, instead of Godzilla attacking your city in the disaster scenarios, you would have Bowser. And uh, the music was enhanced a little bit to uh, take advantage of the uh, Super Nintendo's 16-bit audio processor and and things like that. So all of these different sim games met varying degrees of success and varying degrees of failure, but none really captured the success of SimCity. It was clear from uh, from fan mail, industry news, and things like that that the uh that fans were really clamoring for a direct sequel to uh to the original SimCity. At the time, Will Wright was working on a very ambitious project that he referred to as Dollhouse. 
this game would eventually, much later on in life, become uh, become the incredibly popular uh, The Sims. And he had very, very little interest in in revisiting something that he had done in the past. You know, he had already worked on SimCity. It was a success, and he wanted to move on to other things. That was the kind of guy that he was. Let's let's be forward looking here. So after Will Wright turned down the opportunity to uh, to helm a sequel for SimCity, the task Fred the, the task fell to his associate Fred Haslam, who co-developed Sim Earth with Will Wright. So with Haslam at the helm, they started developing the game on the existing codebase from Sim Earth. Uh, after a bit of development time, it became very clear that the, the direction this new game was taking was not working at all. The Sim Earth code was very unstable. It wasn't cooperating with efforts to modify it or enhance it. And uh, the the view perspective that they had taken with the game uh, also appeared to not be working very well. Apparently, panic began to set in at uh, you know in in Maxis's management, and Will Wright was again asked, perhaps even begged, to please come and get this project on track. He reluctantly agreed, and development on the sequel to SimCity was uh, completely halted pending a major review. So Wright spent over a year preparing for the sequel to SimCity, which was becoming known as SimCity 2000. He and his team combed through suggestions and opinions sent in by players. They spent a lot of time meeting with experts as well, including city planners, police and fire officials, public work representatives, school teachers, local politicians, and you know much, much more. Uh, all of this research resulted in a much more complex, much richer, and much deeper simulation than was achieved in the original game. Uh, the view was changed from top-down to diametric, which for the layperson, which includes me, to be perfectly honest, is uh, basically a three-quarter view. So if you look at the original SimCity, you had a direct top-down view. SimCity 2000, you're kind of looking at things from an angle a bit above and looking down on uh, on the city. Another game from the same view angle would be, uh, let's say, Diablo. So from this three-quarter view, it gave us uh, the ability to rotate the view around four different perspectives. So not only could you look at your city from an angle, you could look at it from four different angles. This new view also allowed for something really cool, which was elevation changes. Uh, in the first game, the land was always assumed to be flat. In this game, you could have hills, even mountains, and you could even have waterfalls. This had a huge, huge, huge effect on how you built your city and how you built its associated infrastructure. In addition to uh, the different above-ground elevations, they also added a single layer of underground where you could build things like water infrastructure and subways. And then on top of this, again, they added many, many more civic buildings on top of the you know stadiums and and police stations and fire stations from the, the previous game, you could build things like prisons, you could build schools, you could build libraries, museums, and hospitals, and you know many, many other things. On top of roads and the aforementioned subways in the underground layer, you could build things like highways, 
bus depots, rail depots, and also there were many more options for transit infrastructure. And instead of having airports and seaports be a fixed size, they were just now zoned like all the other zones were. Instead of being a fixed size, it made these facilities be much more flexible. You know, you could make an airport as big as you wanted or as small as you wanted. I know when I was originally playing the game, I had this weird tendency, and I can't explain why, to make massive airports and massive seaports in my cities. Uh, the number of available power plants increased from two in the original game, basically coal and nuclear, to nine. And each of these different power plants had varying levels of pollution, varying levels of power output, and um, they timed out. After 50 years, the power plant would effectively blow up and it would have to be replaced. So this kind of brought in a bit of a, an idea of maintenance requirement for, for your infrastructure. You know, some of the power plant options were pretty cool. In addition to just having these installations that would generate power, there were there were things like hydroelectric power plants, which you could only place on, um, on waterfall tiles. SimCity 2000 also offered the concept of neighboring cities. You could build road connections for $1,000 to your neighbors, and uh, these connections had an immediate increase on population, an immediate increase on trade revenues, and uh, while this concept in SimCity 2000 was pretty basic, uh, it was expanded much, much more in, uh, in follow-up games, SimCity 3000 and SimCity 4, but it really, uh, it really found its roots here. So aside from all this great new content, one of the coolest additions to SimCity 2000 was known as the Query Tool. Uh, this tool would basically allow you to find out more information about specific buildings in your city. Info about what kind of building you were looking at, be it an apartment building or you know, a large office tower or a small convenience store or a gas station or a church or a low-income home or a luxury condominium building. You know, you'd find out that. You could find out how the building was zoned, what its crime rate was, what its access to schools were, whether it was properly powered, whether it was properly watered. Utility buildings like power plants, hospitals, and police stations could provide information about how they were operating. And uh, this query tool is also a fun source of many of the game's little Easter eggs. Querying the zoo tells you how many different types of, uh, of animals you have. And for some reason, Maxis really enjoys uh, things like camels. So it'll tell you how many different kinds of camels you have and how many llamas you have and how many dromedaries you have. <laughs> uh, what else is there? You know, if you click on the mayor's house, uh, it states how many unwanted visitors you've had this year. And, uh, you know, I used to spend a lot of time, you know, at times maybe even sometimes just an hour kind of clicking around on the different buildings in my city and, uh, and, and seeing what there was to see. And I think, you know, this query tool is one of the, uh, the cool features of this game because this would allow the player to kind of, I guess, you know, like a kid play imaginatively with the city. So yes, yeah, so the game itself didn't have a story and the game itself didn't have a progression aside from the progression of technology. But by clicking around with this query tool and building things a certain way, you kind of create a story in your head about how your city is doing and about how your city is progressing. 
you know, maybe there's an area in your city that's a little more run down and a little more crime ridden and you decide to, you know, to clean it up and that, that creates in your head a bit of a story. And as you progress, a story develops all about your city and that's what makes each game unique and each city unique and even each sitting of the game unique. You're not just laying out roads and you're not just laying out zones, you're building something and that something is organic and it doesn't necessarily always work in the way you intend. And I think that's one of the really, really great, great, great things about this game. Uh, SimCity 2000 was also the only SimCity game to employ a newspaper to communicate information. Every once in a while, a newspaper would pop up on the screen. There'd be a big headline about kind of the main issue that was going on at the time, be it maybe that time was running out to replace a power plant or, you know, there was a fire or traffic is really bad or something like that. And again, just like the query tool, aside from the main headline, there's a lot of other little stories which are very funny. And if you take the time to read them, you can, again, really uh, see into the... Uh, the sense of humor of uh, of the developers and the writers and uh, and the team at at Maxis. Again, SimCity 2000 had scenarios, just like the original game, including a scenario co uh, replicating the 1991 Oakland Hills fire, where Will Wright actually lost his home. He was uh, he's been uh, reported as saying in interviews that he used to play this scenario quite often, and he would spend the entire time defending his house from being burned down at the expense of the rest of the city. Uh, SimCity 2000 also shipped with uh, expansions, uh, quite a few of them, but uh, the most popular ones were Scenarios Volume 1, Great Disasters, which contained recreations of both historical disasters in addition to fictional ones. Another very cool expansion was the SimCity 2000 Urban Renewal Kit, abbreviated as SKIRK. <laughs> Uh, this kit allowed players to edit buildings and create kind of their own tile sets, either based on existing buildings or totally from scratch. So if you were a bit bored with uh, with how your city was looking after a while, you could you could change that up. Uh, SimCity 2000 released in January of 1994 and sold 300,000 copies within the first four months. Just like its predecessor, it was pretty much an immediate immediate hit. Subsequent releases. On uh, on this in the SimCity series included SimCity 3000 and SimCity 4. Uh, these two games continued to increase the depth of the simulation in in various ways, uh, and they also converted over to a full 3D graphics engine. However, you know I I could talk about them. Perhaps I may talk about them in in a later show, something like that. But you know, aside from from a couple of as I said, 3D graphics and more options in the simulation and things like that, the core gameplay remained very similar to the paradigm which was defined in SimCity 2000. So to me, SimCity 2000 is the quintessential version of SimCity. It has, to me, just the right amount of complexity, just the right amount of uh, graphical definition, just the right amount of detail, and, uh, you know, quite a, a fun, a fun sense of humor. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for graphics. So uh, let's chat a bit about the graphics and sound in SimCity 2000. So SimCity 2000 sports 256 color SVGA graphics at 640 by 480 and required a 486 33 megahertz to, to run. Well, I would not by any means, even at the time, consider the graphics to be revolutionary, to be cutting edge, or to be 
incredible, uh, they were certainly fun and they were certainly colorful and they were certainly detailed enough to keep the players of the day entertained. The game's sound effects, again, were not revolutionary. Some of them were a little bit jarring and uh, they were decidedly, uh, you know, low, low bitrate wave files and uh, pretty straightforward MIDI files. But they definitely added, in addition to the graphics and in addition to the background, you know, to the music and everything, they, they all added to create a certain ambiance to the game and a certain kind of uh, casual, fun atmosphere, which really made you feel comfortable. And, you know, you were never jarred by anything. You were never taken out by anything. And, you know, so the graphics and sound playing together with the gameplay really created a fun environment for people to be creative in. Uh, the music itself was was MIDI. There were a wide variety of, uh, of styles included on the different tracks, and uh, some of them were really, really quite uh, quite catchy and, and really get into your head. A lot of it was fun, kind of jazzy, and uh, music in this game, I feel specifically, really defined the music of SimCity and the music of, of Max's Sim games in general. So despite some limitations of technology, SimCity offers fun graphics, fun music, and fun sound. After all that, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot more. I could talk for, for hours and hours and hours about, about SimCity 2000. I could talk a little bit more about acrologies, which are uh, you know, self-contained cities within the city to increase your population and things like that. Actually, I will talk about acrologies for one second. So these acrologies, once you get to a certain year and a certain size of city, you gain access to build acrologies and as i said these are self-contained cities which uh which can very very greatly increase your population density and so now one thing while there is no condition for victory in the main SimCity 2000 game there is one event that you can trigger when you build enough i believe it's something to the effect of 50 uh launch acrologies which are the the most expensive most advanced type of acrology once you build 50 of those uh they will all launch into space to uh, take their citizens to uh, another world to found a city. I mean, what this really looked like in the game was that all your launch acrologies would blow up and their populations would be deducted from your <laughs> city's population. But uh, this was kind of an, ev an event that you could work towards. And if you, in your mind, defined that as winning, then uh, boom, you won SimCity. And that by no means finished the game. It actually cleared up a lot of land where all these acrologies were built and um, allowed you to, you know, either build more acrologies or just, you know, reconfigure your city at that point as you saw fit. So, as I was saying, how can we get SimCity 2000 today? Well, it's very, 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 very simple. SimCity 2000 is available for purchase via GOG.com. That's good old games. It costs $5.99 US. This is a great deal. The game runs perfectly on my Windows 7 64-bit machine with the integrated uh, DOSBox installation that, um, that GOG includes with the game. You know, despite the fact that the graphics are 640 by 480, they are scaled up on my 24-inch uh, HD monitor, and they look really, really great. On top of that, if you want to try and get your hands on the original SimCity, um, I don't know if there's really a place to buy it per se, but in 2007, the original SimCity's source code was, uh, was released as a free and open source under the One Laptop Per Child program. So 
the only software that would be included on these OLPC machines had to be free and open source. So to get SimCity on there, it was deemed appropriate that uh, that this the uh, the code was to be released. Uh, more info can be found at uh, a man named Don Hopkins. You can find more info at his blog at donhopkins.com. I will put that in the show notes. And uh, aside from that, there are ways to get it. Again, as I tend to say, a quick Google search will lead you places where you can actually just play SimCity Classic in your browser. And uh, there are also ports for various mobile devices. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're We're huge huge Disneyland Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures, and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort, or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www. Talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a, a Mickey, Mickey day. day. So, before I get to my opinion as to whether or not SimCity 2000 specifically holds up today, uh, something incredible has happened. I have received a voicemail. Uh, my good friend Tim from the Treks and Sci Fi Forums, aka King Isaac Linkser both on there and on Twitter, uh, sent me some of his thoughts on uh, on the SimCity series. So let's take a listen to what Tim has to say. Hello, Billy Bob. It's King Isaac Linkser, and I thought I'd send in my comments about SimCity as a whole. So SimCity 2000, we had a Windows 95 machine with it installed, and I just played the heck out of it, really. It was a lot of fun building cities, losing cities, and uh, just, you know, trying. Um, I really liked the disaster system in it, from floods to fires to alien invasions. It was kind of (laughs) crazy. For, for me anyway at the time and I just had a lot of fun mostly losing I don't think I ever actually made a winning city I did I did sometimes take like the pre-generated cities and you know worked off those but most of the time I just grab a random map and play around and I like that sort of that sort of a sandbox style and I haven't really gotten into SimCity since. Um, there was the original one that we got for our XP machine. I didn't really play too much of that. 
And then I tried uh, SimCity 4, and it was buggy and crashy, and I learned later, after I sold it, that apparently you just had to update it and it would fix itself, so whoops. But I haven't really had an interest in the genre since then, but I'd definitely say that SimCity 2000 was one of my favorite games of all time. It was just, you know really fun. That game, whatever they did, they did it right. And, um, yeah, the game was just good. SimCity 2000 had a, a pretty good uh, soundtrack. I'm currently playing in the background. I mean, it's not the best soundtrack, but it does fit the, the whole uh, theme and style of the game. Uh, sounds were good, and it, well, the graphics were good at the time. But I think they've aged well. I've seen a few video clips of it since then, and it's it's a game that's aged very well, funny enough. And yeah, I mean I just I just really like the sandbox style of play. You could build ports, trains. Oh I I built a lot of trains in in my uh cities and subways and uh I had a lot of windmill factories too, <laughs> um, or whatever that's called, and that's pretty much it. I hope you enjoyed this uh, comment, Billy Bob, and I hope you keep up the great work on this podcast, and uh, I'll be speaking to you later. I'm King Isaac Linkser, signing off. You know, I have to agree. Uh, it's a great game, and uh, you know, thank you so much for your comments and uh, to to thank King for his uh, for his comment, which is the first ever comment I've received on the show. I uh, I sent him a copy of SimCity 2000 off of uh, off of Good Old Games. We uh, we uh, twittered back and forth a little bit last night, reminiscing, and uh, he fired up a screenshot onto uh, onto his Instagram and. Uh, you know, I hope you're uh, you're getting a, a little bit of enjoyment out of that. You know, as much as it's an old game, as you said, it uh, it holds up pretty well. So, uh, <laughs> with that in mind, I guess I should tell you guys my opinion on whether or not the game holds up. Well, again, I will agree wholeheartedly with uh, with King. Uh, again, I'm going to speak specifically to SimCity 2000. It most definitely holds up. At least it does for me. Uh, the game has very, very few issues aside from some minor slowdowns when your city gets very, very, very large. Uh, you know, for example, maybe your, your water system will take a bit more time to update that, you know, new areas getting watered. And if you lay power lines, it takes a little bit more time for them to register that, you know, they have power from the rest of the grid. But, you know, these are very minor issues and they really, unlike certain issues we were talking about last week in Wing Commander, uh, they really do not detract from the experience really whatsoever. You know, yes, the graphics appear a little bit pixelated, but they're still really fun looking even today in the la- in the world of 3Dness and the world of hyperrealism. They're, they're still fun, they still hold your interest, and they still do the job that they were originally created to do. You know, after playing SimCity 2000 for actually quite a bit of time in preparation, for this podcast, I got curious and I pulled out my SimCity 4 disc, which uh, SimCity 4 was released in 2003. And uh, well, SimCity 4 is much cooler looking with its 3D engine and added complexity with things like, uh, you know, full on neighboring 
cities, more different zone densities, and things like waste management, uh, at its core, as I said before, the gameplay is pretty much exactly the same. So to me, and I may get in trouble saying this, but I truly do believe it, to me, SimCity 2000 is almost a perfect game. It's as close to a perfect game as you can get. So, you know, with that in mind, I would totally recommend this game to anyone interested in these kinds of simulations and, you know, interested in cities and interested in, you know, the way things evolve over time. And even if you just want to mess around and have a good time and build something up and then send an alien in to destroy it. Uh, just a lot of fun. It's dirt cheap on GOG. And uh, please play it if, if, if you are so inclined in any way. I strongly recommend it. So finally, I've talked about the history of uh, the SimCity franchise, and uh, pretty recently, I guess within the past uh, month or two, some news has come up with regard to the future of SimCity. So as I just said, the last SimCity game, SimCity 4, came out in 2003. Well, recently, a new SimCity game was announced by Maxis, which is now a subsidiary of Electronic Arts. Uh, but it was announced for release later in 2013. This game has a totally new simulation engine, and it looks incredible. And seeing the, uh, the preview videos for this game got me very excited. Uh, the game engine tracks things to the degree of tracking individual sims within your city. It gives them a home, it gives them a job, it gives them a hobby. And uh, these, these simulated people walk around your city and, and live their lives. Individual buildings are expandable and customizable. So instead of building a small fire station or a large fire station and then building another fire station across the street because you need another one, you can start off with a regular size fire station and then you can add, you know, a garage to it. You can add another garage to it. You know, you can add a second floor to it and things like that. So, you know, they're really taking this idea of SimCity and this idea of the simulation to the next level, at least according to their preview videos. This will be the new first new SimCity game in 10 years. And if what I'm seeing is what they're actually going to release, uh, they're continuing to capture the secret sauce that they created back in the original and in SimCity 2000. You can see all these videos and developer interviews and previews and press releases and all that stuff at, uh, at SimCity.com. So as I just as I said before, there is so much more I could say about SimCity. I could probably talk for another hour on this, but uh, but I think that's that's good for now. You know, thanks again to everyone for listening. Special thanks to King Isaac Linkser for uh, for his voicemail. And um, you know, if anyone else is interested in any of the topics that we're talking about, be it SimCity or be it things we've talked about in past episodes, Seven Max, Wing Commander. Uh, or anything like that, please feel free to send me uh, an email at podcast at umbcast.com and especially send me an email if you're interested in what we are going to be talking about in the next episode, which is the XCOM game series, more specifically concentrating on the first game, XCOM UFO Defense. So uh, if you played XCOM at all back in the day, 
send me a voicemail. Tell me what you thought. I will be more than excited to play anything you guys send me as long as it doesn't contain too many naughty words. So that's that. Thanks to everyone. Thanks to all my friends who sent me computer parts for the side project. Thanks again to Tim. And uh, we will see you all next week here in the upper memory block. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.